Let's pray together. Father, as we were listening to that song, as we were thinking about the ways that we are guilty, the things that make us ashamed before you, God, I know that I, reflecting even on just this week, I have a whole list of things. God, I've indulged in anger and frustration at people. I've harbored bitterness. I've entertained lustful thoughts. I've closed myself off to the needs of others. I've pitied myself. I've been judgmental. I've envied people. I've worked so hard to manage my image so that people would like me. I've been anxious and refused to trust you. God, before you, I, I, I'm guilty. All of us are. And God, we, we confess our sin to you. We know that we need your forgiveness and your grace, each and every one of us. And so we ask that you would be merciful to us. God, we are so, so thankful that your word tells us that when we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin. You, you say that you separate our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. God, that is amazing mercy. That is amazing grace. God, we are so, so thankful. God, we ask that as we look at your word today, that you would keep us humble before you that we would understand that we are recipients of mercy. God, as we look at the story of Rahab and how you touched her life, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts, going into the places where we need to be shaped and changed and freed. Give us ears to hear what you're saying in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Natasha Romanov was a Russian spy and one of the best. At a young age, she was placed in the Black Widow Ops program where she was trained in all the arts of espionage, from hand-to-hand -hand combat to sharpshooting, from computer hacking to disguises, from interrogation to seduction. And by the time she was a teenager, she was one of the deadliest assassins on the planet. Working for the KGB, she infiltrated strategic sites, taking out targets and gathering information. She was one of the most effective and valuable agents in Russian intelligence until she defected. During an assignment, Natasha met an American named Clint Barton, AKA Hawkeye, and she got to know Hawkeye. And as she did, her eyes were open to the fact that she had been fighting for the wrong side the whole time. Hawkeye recruited her to join a secret multinational organization known as SHIELD, there you go. And now she works with superheroes like the Avengers to defend the earth from the forces of evil. Well, today we are going to be talking about a woman who, like Black Widow, has a dark past. She's been playing for the wrong team for a long time, but then she gets tangled up with a couple of spies and her life is forever changed. We're currently in the middle of a series that we're calling Heroes, and we're looking at eight different biblical heroes, and we're asking ourselves the question, what actually made them heroic? And what we're finding out is that basically all of them were pretty messed up. They had all sorts of flaws and all sorts of reasons why they really shouldn't have been heroes. 
Our hero this morning is Rahab, someone that maybe some of you don't know a whole lot about, but in the New Testament, in both the book of James and the book of Hebrews, she is listed as an example of tremendous faith. She's up there with Abraham and Joseph and Moses and King David and the the big names of the Bible. Her story is found in Joshua chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. If you open to the beginning of the Bible, Joshua is the sixth book. So you find Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. And we're going to be in chapter 2 starting right in verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from the most awkwardly named town in the Bible, Shittim. I had to say it or you would have been thinking about it. He said, go over to the land, go over to the land he said, especially Jericho. Let me give you some background here, what's going on. To understand this story, it's helpful to know the big story of what's been happening in the first five books of the Bible. In the first book, Genesis, God comes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and promises to give the land of Canaan to them and their descendants. In the second book, Exodus, we, uh, God sends Moses to rescue the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. You remember a couple of weeks ago, Dave Choi was here and he talked about Moses. The third book, Leviticus, is a set of instructions about how the people are supposed to live in the land. And then the fourth book, Numbers, a number of things happen here that are very important. What happens is God leads the people to the edge of the promised land, and he finally says, all right, it's all yours. Go in and take it. Just walk in. Have at it. But what happens is the people send in 12 spies. And the 12 spies go in, and they check out the land, and they come back. And 10 of the spies say, look. The land is exactly what God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's wonderful, abundant. You're going to love it there. But there's a problem. The people are huge. Like, they're, they're, they're massive. And we are not going to be able to win a fight with them. I'm not sure this is a good idea. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, sure, the people are intimidating. But God said he'd be with us. So what are we afraid of? Let's go in. Let's take the land. Well, the people, they listen to the 10 and not the two, and they start to panic. They say, we can't do this. We're just freed slaves. We're we're not soldiers. These people have fortresses and weapons and a trained army, and we we cannot enter the land. We're going to be crushed. And so they refuse to go in. And God says to them, all right, if you're not going to go into the land, I'm not going to make you. If you don't have enough faith to take the, the blessings that I'm handing to you, well, you don't need to have them. The alternative, though, you're not going to like. If you don't go into the land, the only other thing to do is just keep wandering around here in the desert. So you can do that for the rest of your life. You can wander in the desert. But I'm not going to punish your kids for your lack of faith. So in 40 years, when all of you guys are dead, I'm going to bring your kids back around and I'm going to give them the land. And that's what happens. For 40 years, Moses leads the people in the desert, and the whole time they're rebelling, they're complaining, they're grumbling, they're they're worshiping idols, they try to oust Moses and Aaron from leadership. The whole thing is a total mess. But sure enough, God sustains them, protects them, provides for them, and ultimately leads them back around to the edge of the promised land once again. In the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, we've got a series of speeches from Moses where he gives his final instructions before the people enter into the land. And one of those instructions is that they're supposed to put Joshua in charge after he dies, and Joshua is supposed to lead the people into the land. And so that's where our story begins. Joshua's on the edge of the land, and the first city that he's got to deal with going in is Jericho. 
Now, when I was a kid, we used to sing the song, you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Do you, anybody else? Okay. I won't make you sing along. That would be embarrassing. But I used to imagine Jericho as this massive city, this sort of medieval castle with hundreds of thousands of people in it and big walls all the way around and archers up on the wall and towers and ramparts and, and just banners flapping in the wind. It's Helm's Deep or Care Paravel. But the reality, and I just only recently found this out, is that Jericho wasn't that big. It was about four or five acres in size. So to put that in perspective, the campus here in St. Charles is 40 acres. The building itself is about four acres. If you're in DeKalb, you need to imagine the Farm and Fleet building and the parking lot there. That's about the size of Jericho. Or at Blackberry, it's from the road all the way to the creek, all of that land. Or in Bartlett, the church building, the parking lot, and then the whole park next to the church. It's not that big of a place. Maybe a, a thousand or so people there. But Jericho isn't important because of its size. You see, Jericho is more of a military base than a population center. It's a garrison town from which an army could defend the surrounding countryside and the nearby trade routes. And so if Israel's going to take the land, they need to take out Jericho and the troops that are stationed there. And so that's why Joshua sends the spies in to check it out. Let's keep reading in verse 1. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Here's our hero for today, Rahab. And here is Rahab's problem. Rahab is the ultimate outsider. She's the ultimate outsider. Now, I want you to imagine this situation from the perspective of the spies. These are probably young guys. The, Israel doesn't have a professional army, so they probably don't have a lot of experience in combat or espionage. But they head into the town, and in those days, if you were coming into a place and you needed a place to stay, what you would usually do is you'd try to meet someone in public and ask to stay in their home. Now, that might sound odd to us because we don't do it that way, but in those days, hospitality was a huge value, so the request was usually honored. But these guys, they're not sure they want to go into someone's home because they can't really tell people why they're there. And they might have had a cover story. They might have been disguised as merchants or something. But to ensure that they have some anonymity, they go to a place that specializes in private matters. They head to a brothel. Now, Rahab probably wasn't the only prostitute there. In fact, she might have been the owner of the establishment, a, a madam whose girls provided services to uh, support the troops. And my guess is that it was kind of an awkward situation for the spies. I mean, being in kind of a forbidding environment was, you know, maybe, uh, you know, kind of thrilling or something, but I'm sure they've probably felt dirty, a little guilty, a little out of place, not sure what to do with themselves. I mean, what would they have thought about Rahab? Uh, they probably looked at her and said, look at this woman. How can she live with herself, selling herself to different men every single night? What kind of society would tolerate something like this? What kind of gods would tolerate something like this? People like her, people like this, that's the reason God is punishing these people. That's the reason he's taking their land and he's giving that to us. For an Israelite, Rahab was the ultimate outsider. She's culturally, religiously, morally other. She represents everything that they oppose. I wonder how many people come to church and they feel like outsiders. I wonder how many people come into a place like this and they look around and they think everybody here is judging me. I grew up in a large family, a very large family. I have 11 sisters and no brothers. That is right. I am the only boy. This is a true story. Um, my grandmother also lived with me. My dog was a girl, um, but it actually gets worse than that. 
I have, uh, my family was a foster family growing up, and so over the course of my lifetime, over 350 teenage girls came to live in our home. Not all at once, mind you, but it was still intense nevertheless. I managed to come out reasonably normal, I think, um, but that was the story of my, my childhood. My sisters came from a lot of different backgrounds. Uh, pretty much all of them suffered some form of abuse or neglect from their home family. That's why they were living with us. But in addition to that, uh, most of them had gotten in trouble for different reasons, drugs, vandalism, involvement with gangs, shoplifting. And even if they hadn't gotten in trouble with the law, most of them had dabbled in things like underage drinking or they were sexually active from a really young age. And and I didn't really think about it when I was young, but I've wondered a lot since then what it was like for my foster sisters to come to church with my family. Well, what it would have felt like for them to be in the youth group and to hear talks about uh, don't sleep with your boyfriend or, you know, avoid drinking at parties or don't hang out with the wrong crowd. And I wonder if they ever felt like, do they think I'm the wrong crowd? Am I the person that all of the moms and dads and pastors are trying to keep their kids away from? Am I the bad influence they're always talking about? Uh, the people at my church didn't know their past or their private life, but I'm sure my sisters felt like that's what everybody was thinking. I, I wonder if any of you felt like that today. When we just made an announcement about Planned Parenthood, and I'll, I'll be honest, as leaders in the church, we sort of went back and forth about this one. We were torn about whether or not to say anything because we know it's a, a responsibility of ours to speak out about our convictions, but we also know that when we speak out in those ways, lots of people feel alienated and judged especially when it comes to abortion. A third of all women have had abortions, which means whether a man or a woman in this room, a part of your story, for a lot of you, is abortion. And so I'm wondering how many of you were here and you heard what we said and you imagined, am I welcome here? Are these people gonna just judge me, condemn me if they hear about my past? Or or maybe you were here a, a couple of weeks ago and we made a, a similar announcement about same-sex marriage. And again, we wanted to be clear about our convictions. But I know, I guarantee there are some of you here who you're gay or you're in a relationship or you, you've got attractions to people of the same sex and you don't know what to do with it and you're trying to sort it out. And you didn't hear our statement just as the church saying, here's what we believe about marriage. We want to be clear. You heard it as a statement saying, we don't want people like you here. We went back and forth about these things because we don't want to communicate in any way that we are against you that you aren't welcome here. We don't want to push back and say you don't belong, but that's what a lot of people hear anyway. Maybe it isn't here at Christ Community, maybe it's been at another church or with another group of Christians and you've gotten that message. You don't belong here, you're on the outside. Maybe some of you even feel like an outsider to God. We've been singing about God and you've kind of been holding back in your heart because you you hate that thought of a God who sees everything, who knows the truth about you, and you wonder if you're too far gone. If you've done so many things, if you've gone so far down the path that you can never return and he would never welcome you. Well, Rahab is an outsider to the Israelite spies. She represents the things that they oppose. But regardless of this, the spies, they look at Rahab and they see her brothel as probably the safest place for them to stay. And so that's where they go. Maybe they felt safe for a little while, but then came a pounding at the door. Let's keep reading in verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, look, some Israelites have come tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house. 
because they have come to spy out the whole land. Now, when you read the word king in this passage, you probably shouldn't be thinking sort of a modern head of state. This is really more like a a local warlord. He gets to be the chieftain of this little city-state because he's the guy who commands the army. Now, at this point, the spies have been caught. They, They have no way out, and they're pretty much done for. But then the unexpected happens. Verse four. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly and you may catch them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. I can imagine the situation from the spy's perspective. They're up there on the roof, sweating under the branches of flax, trying not to move, trying not to breathe too heavy, doing their best to hear what's going on in the room below. Well, what's going to happen? Is she going to rat us out? Is she going to turn us in? But then they hear Rahab open the door and say, hey, big guy. Oh, yeah. Well, of course they were here. Lots of men come in and out here, you know, but I usually let my customer's business be their business. But if you really want to know, they left about an hour ago. It looked like they were kind of in a rush. I didn't ask where they were going, but they're heading towards the city gate. And it looks like it's closed and you might want to catch them. And the guards rush off. And now the spies have got to be really confused. Why did that just happen? I mean, why did she do that? If she's found out that she lied to the king's men, that can't go well for her. Why would she risk her neck for us? She doesn't owe us anything. But then Rahab comes up to the roof And she explains herself. And here is where she becomes a biblical hero. Verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Here's how she becomes a hero. First, Rahab hears the right story. She hears the right story. The big surprise here is that as soon as she opens her mouth, this pagan prostitute starts telling stories of the mighty acts of God. She talks about how they escaped from Egypt and how they parted the Red Sea and how they won these battles in the desert. And the amazing thing about it is that Rahab draws the right conclusions from these things. She realizes your God must be the real God and he must be giving you this land. It's kind of astounding. Rahab is the last person who should be given a theology lesson to two Israelites about their God, but that's what she's doing. How did that happen? How did she hear these stories? I mean, it's not like a bunch of Israelites were passing through all the time preaching their religion. I mean, where'd you pick up on these things? Well, it seems like the stories of Israel's escape from Egypt must have been passed around from people who were sort of amazed at these tales, and Rahab must have heard them and wondered about them. And in our society, there are things like this too, these kind of rumors of God that float around, these scraps of spiritual truth, bits of wisdom, hints at God and redemption. 
I know a guy who came to faith because he was curious about the afterlife. He had heard something about near-death experiences and it kind of made him scared about death. And so he just started investigating and some of what he found was good and some of it was bad. And, and he just kept you know, following the trail until he picked up a Bible and no one ever pieced the whole thing together for him. But ultimately he wound his way around until he found the truth. And maybe that's you. You've heard some things about Jesus and it intrigues you. I think it's really interesting that a prostitute is the one who puts it all together. I actually think it makes a lot of sense. In spite of what it might look like from the spy's perspective, Rahab doesn't just represent the immorality of her society. She also represents the suffering of her society. She, she is both the perfect representative of what's wrong with the culture, but she's also the perfect example of the kind of victim her culture generates. I mean, she didn't Google top 10 career paths for young women and see software developer, mechanical engineer, and prostitute and just say, oh, that's the one I'm going to write my essay on, what I want to be when I grow up. Something happened in her life that put her on this path. We're going to find out in a couple of verses that she has a family, a father, a mother, siblings. What happened in that family that Rahab ended up as a prostitute? You see, Rahab isn't just an outsider to the Israelites. She's an outsider to her own people. She's living on the fringes. Here's the thing about outsiders, though. Sometimes outsiders can see things that insiders can't. When you're on the fringes of a society, when you've been burned by the status quo, it's a lot easier to see what's wrong with the status quo. And maybe that's why Rahab realizes her society stories aren't enough. Maybe that's why she goes looking for another story to make sense of her world. And maybe that's what's going on with you. Maybe you, you saw a baby in a manger at Christmas and you just can't get out of your head the idea of a God who would draw near, a God who would become human. Or you hear about Jesus dying on the cross and you say, you're fascinated by that kind of love. Who, who would lay down their life for another person? How can you forgive someone who has hurt you? Or you hear Christians claim that Jesus rose from the dead and you don't know if it's true or not, but you want it to be true. You want to believe that there is more to life than this, that death isn't the end. You've heard some part of the story and you wonder, maybe this story is the one that can make sense out of my life. And that's where it begins with Rahab. But here's where it leads to the second thing that Rahab does to become a hero. She fears the right thing. She fears the right thing. Look at how many times fear is mentioned in this passage. Verse 9, a great fear of you has fallen on us. We're melting with fear. Verse 11, our hearts melted in fear. Everyone's courage failed. The people are afraid and their fear is justified. One of the things that we discover when we start to learn the story of God is that we're on the wrong side of the story. A few weeks ago when we talked about the life of Jacob, we learned that in God's story, all of us are villains. And Rahab realizes she's on the wrong team, that her people are the bad guys and God has sent Israel to judge them and take their land away. Now, this is a part of the story that really bugs a lot of people. It actually kind of bugs me. And so I, I want to take a, a brief aside here to explain this because a, a lot of people ask the question, how can there be a God, a good God, a just God, and have him send in his people to wipe out another group of people and take their land? It doesn't seem loving at all. It, it would probably take a, a full sermon to really dig into this. But what I can do is give you just five quick bullet points. They're going to be quick that will help you understand that there is a plausible explanation to this, and maybe it will whet your appetite to go check it out a little bit more. There's a, a book that I believe is still on the shelves in the bookstore that's called The God I Don't Understand by Christopher Wright, and it's got a couple of great chapters on this in it. 
But here here are some thoughts. The first is this. This invasion of Canaan is not the strong fighting for God. It's God fighting for the weak. Remember, Israel is a, a group of recently freed slaves. They don't have a professional army. They don't have advanced weapons. And so you shouldn't imagine like the Romans or Alexander the Great or some imperialistic power coming in to crush the native population. In every single way, the people that Israel is battling are their military superiors. And so in the battles in the Bible, actually Israel does a lot of things that are tactically stupid. Okay, think about the battle of Jericho. They march around the walls or David versus Goliath. Like they're doing things that don't make any sense. And the only reason they win the battle is because God fights for them. Second thought is this. God has been very patient with the Canaanites. God's really explicit about this. The reason he's taking the land from the Canaanites is because he's judging them. He's judging them for things like exploiting the poor, violence, misusing the land, but especially for their brutal religious practices that involved explicit sexual acts and worship, child sacrifice, and a whole lot more. And this has been going on for a long time. 400 years earlier, God comes to Abraham and says, yeah, I'm going to take the land from these people, but I'm going to give them a chance for their sin to pile up. I'm going to be patient with them. When they've reached the point of no return, then I'm going to judge them. God waits centuries to say enough is enough. And interestingly, when God takes the land from Israel in about four or 500 years from this point, he's actually judging them for the same thing. So he's, a, he's fair on both sides. Third, Israel is attacking military targets, not civilian centers. In the book of Joshua, the cities that are attacked are are all like Jericho. They're strategic military targets, not places where a lot of people live. Fourth, in the Bible, the language of total destruction is standard battle rhetoric from the ancient world. So when the Bible uses words like, they utterly destroyed them and they left no one alive, you've got to recognize that this is ancient trash talk in military terms. This is how any decisive victory was described. It's sort of like if someone recapped a a game where their favorite sports team uh, won the game and they said, they slaughtered them, they crushed them, they shut them down completely. Like you don't think that they actually physically hurt the other team and you don't even think, well, the other team didn't score any points. it's, It's a way of saying this was a huge victory. So when you read this kind of language, it's not always in the Bible a literal account of how many people died. In fact, if you're paying attention, sometimes the very people who are said to have been utterly destroyed show up a few pages later and cause trouble for Israel again. Fifth, and this is the hardest one and the most important one, God has a right to judge. This is going to be hard to swallow. We might not like that God sent Israel to judge the Canaanites, but we've got to acknowledge that if there is a God... He is completely within his rights to punish evil. If you ask the average person, who gets into heaven? Who's on God's good side? Who does God accept? You typically get one of two answers. They either say everybody or they say good people. And both of those answers have serious problems with them. If you say that everybody gets into heaven, that everybody's on God's good side, all people, no matter what they've done, then you end up believing in a God who doesn't care about anything. You end up believing in a God who doesn't care about the evil in the world. He doesn't care when the rich exploit the poor. He doesn't care about children who are abused. He doesn't care about human trafficking or greed or violence or all the self-centeredness that destroys our relationships. If you believe in a God who doesn't judge, you believe in a God who doesn't care. But if you say that God does care about evil, then you've got a serious problem. Because you've got to say, I've participated, I've contributed to the evil in the world. 
And so if God's going to be a good God, he's got to be against all evil, including the evil that you do. You see, that's the problem with the other answer. If God accepts good people, well, then we've got to be honest and say, we're not good people. We're not on God's good side. We're on his bad side. And that's a really scary place to be. You should be afraid if you're in that situation. And this is what Rahab realizes, and that's why she's afraid. It's interesting. Rahab says that all of the people around her are afraid, but Rahab is the only one who decides to do something about it. And this is the third thing and the decisive thing that makes Rahab a biblical hero. Rahab trusts in the right rescuer. She trusts the right rescuer. Let's look at verse 12. Now then, she says, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Rahab proposes a deal. She said, I helped you escape. Why don't you help me escape? And I'm sure Rahab realizes that this is kind of a long shot. She's already concluded that God has condemned her and her people. And so asking for mercy might not be a realistic option. But she also realizes this is her only hope. And the same is true for us. I mean, what other options do we have in the face of God? All we can do is plead for mercy and hope that for the chance that he might spare us. I mean, Rahab could have trusted in the military of Jericho. She could have turned to them. They seemed like the superior force. She could have trusted in the gods of her people and hoped that they would protect her. But if God really is the Lord of heaven and earth, what's she going to do? I mean, we try to do this sometimes. We look to inadequate saviors to solve our problems. We say, well, my money will solve it. My hard work will solve my problems. My, uh, I'll throw myself into this relationship that will meet the needs of my heart. If you're religious, your, your morality or good deeds are going to be it. Or if you're like most of us, you just try to distract yourself from the problems from, with entertainment and addictions. And in the end, though, these pseudo-saviors aren't enough to deal with the real issue. The only one who can defend us from God is God himself. And so Rahab asked the men to swear, In the name of the Lord, will you protect me? She pleads to be under the protection of their God rather than her God. And so the spies surprisingly agree to the deal. Let's read in verse 14. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers won't find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you've tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you've brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their heads. We won't be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we'll be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Here's the question for us. How can we be a community for outsiders? How can we be a community where outsiders can become insiders? What do we do when someone like Rahab shows up here and pleads for mercy? 
How can we be a, a church where people who feel like they're distant from God, distant from Christianity, can come in and explore and discover and, and hopefully find Jesus? After Israel wins the battle of Jericho, the spies go and find Rahab and her family. And I can't help but imagining what Rahab and her family were thinking as they walked away from their city, which was now reduced to rubble, and they approached the Israelite camp. What they were thinking, what they were feeling, going to all of these strangers, these people that they, they felt very different from, the, the people that thought of them as outsiders. And from the Israelite side, as they watched Rahab and her family approach their camp, what, what were they thinking? How were they looking at them? How were they sizing them up? Were they judging them? Were they disgusted? Were they questioning the spy's decision? We, we get a little window into what it was like in chapter 6, verse 22, when we get a kind of a, a, a aftermath of the battle, it says this, Joshua sent the two men who had spied out the land, go to the prostitute's house, bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her, which might be a reference to the other prostitutes. They brought out her entire family, and here's the important part, put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. The, the Israelites have no idea what to do with these people. They're looking at them, these are, these are bad people. These are, these are the bad guys. These are the enemy, the foreigners. They're, they're outsiders. These people are unclean. We can't let them in here. I mean, this, this is a holy place, and we're holy people. I mean, we, you know, like, sure, we can be nice to them. We don't have to kill them, but, like, we can't let them get too close. You wouldn't want them rubbing off on anybody. You want them influencing people. Isn't this what some communities do? Isn't this how people feel in churches, whether the churches are trying or not? They, they might feel like the recipients of the church's pity, but they always feel like they're at arm's length, that they're never welcomed in. They're never a part of the core of the church's life. They're outside the camp. Part of the reason this happens is because those of us who have been church insiders, we forget some things. If we want to be a community for outsiders, one of the things we've got to remember is that every insider deserves to be an outsider. Every insider, no matter who they are, deserves to be an outsider. Moses himself warned about this before he died. In Deuteronomy 9, he says, After the Lord your God has driven the Canaanites out before you, don't say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. If you've been following Jesus for more than a decade, odds are you slip into this mindset. I know I do. It can be easy to look at our lives after God has been at work on us for a while and forget how far we've come since God got a hold of us. And it's not just forgetting about how we were way back when. It's also forgetting about where we are right now. We sugarcoat the bad things that are going on inside our hearts. For a lot of longtime Christians, growth, what looks like growth, is often just figuring out new ways to hide this embarrassing stuff in our lives. And when this happens, we can end up looking down on other people as if we're better. We can say, oh yeah, of course, I need grace. But those people, like, they really need grace. And sure, I need to be forgiven, but those people need forgiveness with a capital F. It's, it's a serious deal for them. But God warns, he says, wait, 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 wait. You, you don't get to do that. You, you aren't inside because you're righteous. This isn't a reward for you. You can't look down on anyone. In fact, you're stiff-necked. You're stubborn. I know, I've been working on you for years, and look at how slow the progress has been. All of us are here by grace. Every single one of us. 
And if we want to be a community for outsiders, we've got to remember that. There's another thing we've got to remember. And to see it, I want to keep following Rahab's story here. After she's placed outside the camp in in Joshua 6.24, it says this, They burned the whole city and everything in it. They put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Joshua doesn't leave Rahab outside the camp. He goes and brings her in. And what happens after that? Over the years to come, does she get to be a part of the community? Does she make friends? Does, is she just politely tolerated or is she valued? Well, we aren't told a lot of the details, but we get some interesting hints in a surprising place. You don't have to turn there, but in the book of Matthew, at the very beginning, a part that most of us skip over, we've got this genealogy, this family tree of Jesus and what we, it goes all the way back to Abraham, and it traces it all the way to Jesus. And in the middle of this list of names, you read something like this. Aminadab was the father of Nation. Nation was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Let's stop here for a second. It says that Rahab was a mother. She was a mother. In those days, people didn't marry prostitutes. It just wasn't done. And Israelites didn't marry non-Israelites. So why does it say that Rahab was a mother? What this means is that Rahab became so much a part of the community that regardless of her past, regardless of what she had done, some man loved her, married her, and started a family with her. And what a family they had. Let's keep reading. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, uh, you may have heard of Boaz and Ruth. There's a whole book of the Bible written about them. It's called Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. How much more inside can you get and being the great-grandmother of the king, the very best king. And it doesn't end there. A few dozen generations later, you read this. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. What happens to Rahab? She gets so welcomed into God's people that she gets deeply woven into the central thread of the tapestry of God's great rescue plan. She becomes family to the Messiah. She becomes an ancestor to the Son of God. One day I expect to be in heaven and have Jesus come up and say, I want you to meet one of my favorite people. This is great-grandma Rahab. She's not the ultimate outsider. She becomes the ultimate insider. If we want to be a community for outsiders, we need to remember that God does not merely tolerate outsiders. He treasures them. No one wants to be merely tolerated. We want to be loved. We want to be valued and delighted in. When someone walks through those doors or they come into your community group and they've got baggage, whatever the baggage is, and we've all got it, how do you see that person? Are they someone to pity? Are they a burden? Are they a project? They are someone who is precious to God. Someone like Rahab that God loves and who who God wants to bring into his mission to redeem the world. That person is someone just like you. Here's what we've been told. We have been told that Jesus is going to come back to earth. And when he shows up, he's going to come like Joshua. He is going to come as a conqueror. In fact, that's his name, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, same deal. Jesus is going to come as a conquering warrior. And here's what we know. We've got to remember, Jesus, the commander of the armies of heaven, when he was here the first time, he had a reputation. He had a reputation for hanging out with all of the wrong people. He was criticized again and again 
for eating with tax collectors and sinners and even prostitutes, moral outsiders like Rahab. And when he was asked about this, his answer was this. He he said this, you want to know what heaven is like? You, You know what happens in heaven when someone repents, when someone asks for mercy? I'll tell you what we don't do. We don't say, uh, I guess we can make an exception. We don't say, uh, I guess we could tolerate another one. No, 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 no. When someone repents, what we do is we say, yes, another one, a lost son or daughter. They're back. They're here. Let's throw a party. And so that's why Jesus did the things that he did. That's why he hung out with the people that he hung out with because he knew that the father delights in every single one of his lost children and he rejoices when they come home to him. You have to know this. God does not merely tolerate you. He treasures you. He rejoices in you. He celebrates you. Not because you've earned it, but because you're his. When Jesus returns, he will not be a merciless judge. He will be a just judge, but he will be eager to pardon anyone who has trusted in him as their savior. In the end, Jesus is going to throw a victory feast, a celebration for winning the war against evil. And seated around the table at that feast are going to be the very same people that Jesus ate with when he was here the first time. Former sinners who have heard the right story, who have feared the right thing, and who have trusted the right rescuer. And when we celebrate communion like we're going to do in just a few minutes, this meal is a foretaste of that one. This feast is a preview of that feast. Because here is where the ultimate outsiders, you and me, become the ultimate insiders and dine with the king. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we are here because of your mercy. God, we are so thankful for your love. We are so thankful for your kindness that you would would not just tolerate people like us, but that you would treasure us, that you would delight in us, that you would welcome us in, that you would make us part of your family. God, let that that love, that mercy sink deep down into us and transform our hearts and, and let it make us people who love others like you have loved us. Prepare us now as we go to communion. Draw our hearts to you and remind us once again of how you have saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.